It's time for episode 136 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, May 11th, 2016. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, where hope springs eternal. There's many meanings there. There's springs and clocks, I think. Dan Morin is my co-host. I'm Jason Snell. Hi, Dan. Hey, Jason. You know, you said May 11th there in the uh, in the intro, and I thought to myself, oh my God, is it May already? All month. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that clock just keeps going, I guess. <laughs> the clock keeps on ticking, and the calendars, pages keep on flying. That's, that's totally how it works. Uh, this is Clockwise, where we talk about four technology topics that our guests bring to us, uh, and we do it in less than half an hour. So, We've got two great guests. As usual, to my left, uh, it's Shelley Brisbane. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me. And to my left, senior editor at The Wirecutter and our former colleague over at Macworld, Mr. Dan Frakes is here. Hi, Dan. Hi. How are you doing? Welcome back to you as well. Glad to be here. I should specify Shelley was my former coworker at Mac User, so it's all it's old home week. It's that's what's we're happening. all connected. Back yeah. in the day, back, back in, the day. in time, as it were. Mm, exactly mm-hmm. right. Oh, good theme there. Thank you. Uh, so four topics. I uh, introduced the show, so I guess I'm going to go first because that's how it works. Uh, here's my topic, uh, and it's a fun one. Get ready, everybody. Larry Ellison's uh, suit via Oracle, which now owns Java, against Google which uses Java or something like Java to build uh, its apps on Android, is back in court. That's right. It was so boring the first time they brought it back for more boredom. I don't like tech lawsuits. But what's troubling about this story is that essentially, even though it is a little bit sleazy that uh, that Google is sort of using a knockoff version of Java that it doesn't want to pay for for Android, the fact is, legally, it basically can do that. And so Oracle is suing based on the fact that they say the, the API, the interfaces to which uh, p- programmers uh, program are copyrighted and that's how they're going to do it you know tech lawsuits patents copywriting apis is this a good idea and and more broadly uh who would you root for in this court case like you know do you root for larry ellison do you root for for the google android juggernaut do you root for a meteor to strike the courthouse i'm curious what you think shelly I really hate the idea of having to root for either one of these and i also must say uh that i would I feel great sympathy for those who are on the jury, even people who might be somehow affiliated with the tech industry in a San Francisco courtroom. There's a fair chance of that, although who knows with preemptory challenges and such. But uh, I would not want to be on that jury. And and it is hard to figure out who to root for, and especially because the size of this lawsuit means that whatever result occurs, whether we create new law that says copyright APIs can be copyrighted or whether we say, no, that's ridiculous, there's going to be fairly large effects on the industry, which is why people have weighed in on both sides of this. And uh, I feel it is far above my pay grade to take a definitive position, but I would just prefer that it go away. So I'm going to go back under the covers right now because that's where I'd be happiest. Uh, You know, I'm reminded, as I am so often, of the tagline from that great movie, Alien vs. Predator, whoever wins, we lose. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my t- I tend to be pretty skeptical when it comes to this idea of copywriting APIs, software patents, that kind of stuff, because I think, you know, while there is something in being able to protect your business interests, a lot of times what that's intended to do is stifle competition. Um, so, yeah, I, as far as APIs go, it's such a weird sort of area of code, I get, you know, or just like of technology in general. I have a hard time 
coming up with a way that you could reasonably defend that under copyright, I guess, because it seems like uh, a lot of the work that's done in programming is essentially built on other people's ideas and, you know, stuff. Anyways, it's a very collaborative art form. You know, when I used to work as a programmer, um, we, you know, combed the web looking for examples of stuff all, all over to figure out how people solved a particular problem because you don't want to spend all your time reinventing the wheel. Uh, and so, you know, certainly I think there's a validity to protecting your products and not having them stolen. And, uh, but at the same time, it seems like maybe this really isn't the best way to do it. And certainly like Shelly, I just sort of cover my eyes, shake my head and, and, uh, yeah, Larry Elson's going to have enough money to get on his big boat, no matter what happens here. <laughs> so uh, when I come to these things, I always say, okay, so these are two huge companies. What would the little guys want to do in this? You know, what would like your independent developer want to happen here? And the sad thing is here, there's people on both sides too, because on the one hand, you've got, you've got, um, the Android team who basically said, well, these licensing talks didn't work out. So let's just copy what they did and make our own version that uses all the same code and language. And I'm looking at a small developer and they're like, wait, so Google can just come in and steal my code and use it. And that sucks, right? But on the other hand, you've got patent lawsuits and copyright lawsuits and all these things where, you know, big companies can just bury little companies by saying, oh, you took our stuff. And they're like, no, we didn't. They're like, well, we've got more money. So we say you did. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of like Shelly. I'm like, I really, I, I would be unhappy whoever wins this and it's no good is going to come of this. Yeah. A pox on both their houses is always a good way to put it. <laughs> Root for the meteor. I think what's important here is that is, and the reason that I think I got to say, I want, um, I want Oracle to lose, even though I do think that, that Google's behavior here is questionable. The idea that they, like Dan said, they, uh, the other Dan, that that's the one, um, <laughs> the, the idea that, um, that that uh, if talks don't work out, you just knock it off, you just rip it off and go ahead anyway is is really unpleasant. Uh, but that said, the idea that you could copyright an API could create such a chilling effect for the software industry. So uh, I, I have to say, I, I in the end, I guess I got to come down on Google side on this, even though I might still root for the meteor uh, because of that, because of the ramifications of something like that, where y- you could end up in a in a worst case. Also, because this is a vendetta, right? This is this is a uh, Oracle pushing anything they can to make Google feel pain, and uh, it doesn't matter what the collateral damage is. So yay! That's so unlikely like oracle right yeah i know it's not like larry elson at all he's usually so sunny and happy and they patent sue you you copyright sue them that's the silicon valley way (laughs) thank you dan all right uh enough of that the meteor has struck let's move on to the to my left shelly what's your topic my family just welcomed a a brand new iphone my husband got his very first one and uh, so we had to make the decision about where to get it and as it happened we were also changing carriers at the time so uh this made me wonder where do you get your iPhones when it is time for an upgrade and why? Off the back of a truck. No. Uh, <laughs> I generally, over the last several years, I've pretty much always gone through Apple. Um, and I'm still an AT&T subscriber uh, all the way back to the original iPhone. 
And I think in the earliest day, I think I bought my very first iPhone, as I recall. Maybe Jason and Dan will recall this as well, since I was working with them at the time. Sat outside an AT&T store in the bacon hot sun. Um, and Didn't we all? Yeah, yeah, in, the, in a parking lot. They really did not have their stuff together those days. Um, and But since then, I've pretty much been able to reliably go through Apple to get a new phone when I upgrade. And this year will be very interesting because for the first time, uh, I signed up for the iPhone upgrade program, which debuted last year, I believe. And so... So I'm very interested to see how that works as far as upgrading when the new iPhone comes out later this year uh, in terms of is it a really seamless process or is it kind of a pain in the neck? So, um, yeah, I, I usually go to the source when it comes to this uh, this kind of thing um, for the iPhone, at least for, for other hardware. I sometimes go elsewhere. So, you know, I, I laugh when I see all this because we actually did a huge article about this last fall over at Wirecutter because it's the biggest question we get from people. It's not like which phone should I get? It's how should I buy it? which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, I mean, you can buy it outright, you can lease, you can finance, you can sign a subsidized contract. You can trade in your old phone at the same time with any of those. And like every carrier offers its own prices and plans and like promotions, which change from week to week. So we wrote this guide, we thought we'd keep this updated. And then we're like, forget it. We just threw up our hands and left it as it was. And we have a summary in our main guide to iPhone. So it's just, it is crazy. And people ask this all the time. I'm personally on AT&T because I've historically been on there and we have a family plan. Uh, and I've been using their AT&T next plan, but uh, I think next time I upgrade, I'll probably use the uh, Apple iPhone upgrade program mainly because there's no, uh, I like to eventually own my phones. There's no price premium over paying in full upfront. Uh, and you get Apple care which I get for my phones anyway. Um, and if you upgrade every year, Apple Care is actually half price because you get it. Um, they, they only charge you per month. So if you upgrade your phone every year, you've only paid for a year. Whereas if you buy elsewhere and get Apple Care, you pay for the full Apple Care, even no, no matter how long you keep the phone. So if you like Apple Care and upgrade every month, it's a pretty good, I mean, every year, it's a pretty good deal. Um, that said, I really wish T Mobile was good for the places I go because T Mobile's, um, their monthly payments are lowest. Their phone price is lower than other places if you buy the phone and you can upgrade like every six months if you want to. So it's actually much more flexible, but unfortunately T-Mobile doesn't work for us. For me, it uh, I'm, I'm a year and a half into my two-year cycle of my iPhone 6, so I haven't had a chance to try this out yet. Uh, and I'm an AT&T customer. My, I, you know, I'll do the comparison shopping. I think Dan's point about uh, sort of uh, quirks of of the Apple plan <laughs> involving Apple Care are kind of interesting. My gut feeling is that I'm going to keep it simple. I'm fortunate enough to have enough money in the bank that I can just buy a phone outright instead of uh, putting it over a, a period of time. So if the best deal is for me to put down a lump sum and just walk away with a phone, I think I'm going to do that. I feel like that keeps it simple. The reason that I didn't do that in the past was because AT&T was going to lump your uh, – your, it basically was going to charge you as if you were on a phone plan, whether you were or not. And at that point, it makes no sense to do it. But since those days are going away, uh, n now there's no reason for me not to do that. So it's unless one of these other uh, these one of these other programs is better at that, then that's what I'm probably going to do. So uh, just pay for it outright and walk away with my phone that I own. So I'm one of those that had the original 
uncapped AT&T data plan and for a long time have been looking for excuses to go away from it. And we are now brand new T-Mobile customers. And that part of it, I really liked, even though AT&T was offering installment type plans, uh, my contract situation was such that I was either going to have to finish out a long two-year contract that I had had, or we were just going to move over lock, stock, and barrel to T-Mobile, which is what we did. And my husband got his iPhone SE in the T-Mobile store. And part of the reason that we did that was just physical convenience so that all his stuff could be transferred by the nice T-Mobile people over to the um, iPhone SE that he just purchased. And the other reason was that we like the flexibility of uh, the T-Mobile payment options. And I um, I kind of didn't intend to do it when I went to the store. I have an iPhone 6 that has about six months left on its contract. But uh, T-Mobile basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse and said, um, we will pay, not only will we pay the difference between what you have left remaining on your contract at AT&T, uh, but we will also, we'll get you into an iPhone 6S for a really good deal. So I, I ended up with one, even though I needed, did not really need that. But uh, my husband got the SE and uh, so far, we've been pretty happy with it. We did consider the the Apple plan, but since we were going to the T-Mobile store to get the carrier situation changed, anyway, uh, we went ahead and did it. And so far, I've been pretty happy with it. The carrier, the signal strength is pretty good here. It's not it's not really a, an issue. And I also just have felt good about my interactions with T-Mobile, both as a company and also just the design of their website. I found mm. dealing with AT&T and billing and figuring and trying to mm. manage my usage really to be a pain. And I've been pleasantly surprised with how uh, T-Mobile worked out. And um, I guess my only uh, only regret is I'm not sure how the iPhone 6S ended up in my pocket, but you know, I got a newer phone, so yay. <laughs> All right, th- those are great topics. Um, we have two more to go. We're only halfway through the show, so uh, I want to tell you about our halftime sponsor. Uh, this episode of Clockwise is brought to you by Linode. Linode is a combination of high-performance SSD-based Linux servers. They're spread across eight different data centers all around the world, and that makes it a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get these servers at Linode up and running in less than a minute. They've got a web-based tool that does all of the work for you, and plans are incredibly reasonable. They start at just $10 a month for your own server up in the cloud, and you can pick where in the world you want it, even. You can choose your resources. You can choose which Linux distro you want. Uh, All of that from the management your tool. And once you're up and running, you can deploy, boot, and resize your virtual server with just a few clicks. I've used this tool. It's super easy. All of my web presence, uh, the incomparable and uh, six colors, are both served from a uh, a Linode server in Dallas, Texas. Yeehaw. Uh, The industry-leading native SSD storage, powerful Intel E5 processors, and access to a 40 gigabit network uh, for multiple levels of redundancy. I have to say, the yeehaw refers to Dallas and not Texas in general, Shelly. Uh, <laughs> Feel free to stereotype Dallas and Texas in general in any way you wish. <laughs> well, in that case, yeehaw, my server's in Texas, y'all. Yeehaw. And all of Lino, uh, Lino's pricing tiers feature hourly billing with a monthly cap. You're not going to get a big billing surprise. I know what my server costs every month, and I'm shocked at how little it costs given how much I get out of it. There are more than 400,000 customers at Linode. They're all serviced by a friendly 24-7 support team. They're even open over the holidays. They keep improving your infrastructure. I recently rebooted my uh, my server uh, because I got an upgrade. They upgraded from Zen to KVM, and uh, I get a faster server, basically, with uh, about 30 seconds of downtime while I rebooted, and that was about it. So whether you want to run a 
private Git server, host a large database, run a mail server, set up a podcast network, run your own tech blog, whatever. You can do it at Linode. And if uh, you are a listener to this show and you're listening, so that means you get this deal, go to linode.com slash clockwise. You'll support us. You'll get $20 to- toward any Linode plan. And of course, you get a seven-day money-back guarantee. So if you try it and decide you don't like it, you'll get your money back. Go to linode.com, L-I-N-O-D-E.com slash clockwise to learn more and take advantage of that $20 credit. Use the promo code clockwise20 at checkout to get the $20 credit. Thanks to Linode for supporting Clockwise. All right. Halftime sponsor is over. Time for topic number three. Dan Morin, what's your topic? Well, as we record this this morning, uh, Instagram has come out with a new icon, finally replacing its good old skeuomorphic uh, Polaroid style camera. And unsurprisingly, there has been a lot of ado over this this new sort of colorful, simplistic icon. Um, recently, James Thompson, I believe, also changed our, our frequent panelist on this show, changed the icon of his app, PCalc, and got some flack for that as well. And so I guess my question was, A, just sort of like, how do you feel when one of your favorite apps changes icon? Is that a big deal to you or not? And, you know, why do we take these things so personally, do you think? Mr. Frakes, what do you think? I don't know. For me, it's not that I'm taking it personally. For me, it's all about muscle memory. I've kind of got this visual muscle memory, if you will, of an icon, right? And it gets disrupted. I know that when I want to use an app, I look for a particular icon. uh, And when that icon changes, it's almost like as if when a developer rearranges the app's interface, you have to kind of stop and look and think every time you want to use it uh, until you get used to the new way of doing things. So for me, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll look at the icon and I'll be like, yeah, that's a good icon or that's kind of a crappy icon, but the, the visual aspect of it doesn't phase me. It's just that like, damn it, where's that, where's that app that I was looking for? Yeah, I think that's it. I think, I think our spatial recognition, our visual systems are all, you know, they, they, we're, it's hard to put them into words because they're not, they're not about words. They're about vision and location and things like that. I recently moved a couple of my apps around on my, on my iPhone screen. I took something out of the dock and, and put it uh, on the first page, and I moved a different app into the dock, and I still tap the wrong icon all the time. Um, and, and, and it's because of spatial issues and visual uh, processing. And then you throw in a change of an icon where you're looking, you don't even think about it. You may be looking for a color or one particular part of the shape, and to have it change uh, makes you feel uh, confused and, and, and lost. And so I, I understand it. People hate change. I've uh, been back in Macworld. We re- redesigned our website like five times, and some of those designs were better than others, but there were some designs that were really <laughs> terrible and were replaced with ones that were that were dramatically better in every possible measurable way and there were still people who complained because they got used to the old one they knew how the old one worked and this was a new thing they were going to have to learn and that's just human nature so i understand it at the same time if we kept everything the same forever nothing would ever progress so sometimes you just got to do it i agree about the muscle memory aspect and sort of visual expectations about what something looks like i remember when the google icon changed and everybody lost their minds and i (laughs) oh my god and i actually kind of now like the replacement i didn't feel strongly when it was changed even though 
it was the the original Google icon was fairly iconic, if you will, and I can see where people might have had some attachment to it. Not me. I just think about what to me makes a good icon. As somebody with a visual impairment, not only am I really anal about where my icons and my apps are, and I can tell you why an app is a certain place, and that matters to me. But I look for an icon that is distinctive visually, and that may be a color, that may be just a set of lines, whether it's a skeuomorphic or not. And you know the the, I'm not going to evaluate the new Instagram icon having seen it like for an hour at this point, and I know where it is on my iPhone, so it doesn't matter. But I think icons that are less uh, distinctive in terms of contrast between color and background are always going to give me a problem whether I have some sort of emotional issue or not. Like I, I have never been a fan of, say, the stocks icon on the iPhone, even though that icon makes perfect sense because it's like the little lines and everything. But it's not a fairly high contrast icon. So if you do something like Google did and give me a nice high contrast icon that also continues to have a letter in it because it's Google, then I'm going to be reasonably happy. And um, I think that's, I try to judge icons on that basis. Would Is it possible that you could give me some sort of emotional reaction if you changed an icon I particularly liked? I suppose so. But I don't feel like that's where my brain normally lives. Yeah, I agree that the the overall feeling that the muscle memory, the unfamiliarity being kind of a big problem with it. Um, I'm not a designer, so I, I like Shelly, I'm not feeling like I have super strong opinions about the new Instagram icon in particular, but I definitely understand also the people concerned with it's the, the keeping up with the changing times, right? Like, you know, we when when the iPhone debuted, everything was kind of skeuomorphic, and then we shifted away from that. And now we've got these sort of more abstract ideas, and it can be hard to keep up, and it can feel jarring when some of the apps that you're using don't seem to fit in with that overall scheme of design. And so I understand sort of the pressures that go there, too, and I can understand feeling like, oh, it's so weird that everything else on my screen looks nice and, you know, like, in this particular style, and this one thing's out of place. I guess it's like having, like, a oh, your home decorated in one style, like, Art Deco or something, and then one piece that's, like, I don't know, like, Antique Tudor or something like that. I don't know. So I can understand the, the feeling. People get very, very attached to things, so I feel for them, but at the same time, like Jason said... Otherwise, nothing moves forward. Uh, I think that uh, brings us to our last topic from Mr. Frakes. So for years, and uh, literally years, people pined for third-party apps on the Apple TV. I think when we were at Macworld, every single one of us, and as well as everybody else on the staff, wrote multiple articles saying, Apple, yep. it's been years. We want third-party apps on the Apple TV. So now that the latest Apple TV offers exactly that, now everybody's complaining that there aren't enough of them or they aren't very good. What's your take on Apple TV apps? You know, it's a new platform. It's going to take time. I use the Apple TV more than I did with the old Apple TV. Bottom line, I use it more. And I don't just use it for accessing Apple stuff. I use it for some other stuff that I think is uh, is really good on the Apple TV. I use, I, I'm using HBO Go on it. And what I appreciate about it is it's a beautiful interface. It feels very rich. It's kind of fun to move around in the HBO Go interface. The old one was boring and the new one is really good. Um, I use the Major League Baseball app, which has some issues, but at the same time, it's also got some great features. I actually use the ability to have two games running at once, kind of a lot, surprisingly a lot. And it's mostly when I'm um, 
when I'm doing something else, uh, like like making lunch or something like that, and I want a baseball game on, it usually happens on the weekend, and uh, one game goes into commercial, I just swipe you know, to the left or the right to the other game that's playing, and then the audio for that one comes on, and it gets bigger, and the other one kind of recedes into the background. And this is stuff that um, is, uh, these are apps taking advantage of the platform. So I feel like, I feel like I, I'm already using it more. I already find it uh, better and more valuable and richer than it was before. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I'm sure that there's more to come. I think I'm sure that Apple can do more to make the apps richer and that developers will embrace it more over time. And, you know, give it a few years and they're going to be that many more Apple TV boxes out there in the market. Um, there's still a lot of people using the old box. So I think that, uh, you know, I'm optimistic about it. It's not it's not necessarily world changing at this point, but I think it's it's appreciably a better product. I feel like features are a really important part of apps and were kind of the promise of apps initially. So it's not just that you can get an app on the Apple TV, but that you have the ability as a developer to design custom features. And I, I'm not a baseball fan at all, but I, that's the demo that I remember from the Apple TV introduction. I thought, oh, that MLB app looks great because they had done innovative things that fit what that app is about. And the apps I tend to use, for example, I love the Plex app, and it tends to, it looks a lot mm-hmm. like the the Apple video apps, and that's fine. That's not a bad interface, but it basically does one thing, and it does it the way that you would expect it to. And I haven't really found particular apps that I can say do innovative things that I necessarily want them to do, but yeah, hopefully that's coming. And then the other thing is there are apps that were slow to arrive and that, for, for my purposes, haven't yet arrived. And so Hopefully, uh, as the platform gains traction, both we'll get more apps and we'll get apps that have features that are more specific to what that app is about and more innovative things than just, well, here's how you watch this streaming service in video because that's what the the quote-unquote big apps are at this point. And I'm hoping that developers will find ways to do more than that and make the Apple TV more compelling to people who want to do more than just stream television. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I feel like in some ways we all wanted it for so long and we clamored and clamored and Apple finally is like, all right, here, here's, here you go. Apps on the Apple TV. Um, hope you're happy. And I think what's odd about it is that it does feel like maybe, uh, maybe I agree with Jason. It's a better product, but at the same time, it seems like so much of it is things, the same stuff we were doing with the old version. Uh, that there haven't been any really huge new improvements. I mean, I do think there are some good examples like MLB of apps that are sort of taking that, this whole idea of like additional data to interesting places. Um, but I think it's also opened the door for for other companies that want to sort of standardize their experience across platforms. So, you know, I think in particular of the Netflix and Hulu apps on the Apple TV, which I think are not great. And that's because in some ways they want to, both those companies are invested in making those apps work similarly across all their platforms. So what looks good on like the Fire TV doesn't necessarily look good on the Apple TV, or sometimes it doesn't really look particularly good on either of them. Um, and so I have frustrations with that. I think another part of it is that some of the cool stuff that Apple showed off, uh, I'm thinking in particular of Siri here, doesn't really work in conjunction with those other apps, mm. or it's very limited in terms of its functionality with those. So there really isn't anything huge and new that's driving people to these apps because so much of them are things they could do. You know, I gave my old Apple TV 
to my parents and they can still watch Hulu and Netflix and all that stuff. So there's not a huge appreciable difference in the bulk of what you're doing. And and so sometimes I think maybe, maybe it's just not as dynamic a platform as something like the iPhone or the iPad, partially because you're limited in where you're like using it or you're limited in the interface that you have with it. I mean, the Apple remote for itself has a lot of problems um, in terms of its usability. So I just, part of me thinks, well, either they haven't cracked it quite yet, or maybe we don't need as many things on this platform as we do on some of the other platforms that we use. Yeah, I think that it's a good point about not as many apps. Um, there's definitely not as many apps as I expected there to be at this point. But what I have found both personally and, and talking with people who've bought the fourth generation Apple TV is that, um, for them, it's not necessarily whether it's there's as many apps, but whether or not the app they want is on there. And that one app or two app or three apps uh, has caused them to use the Apple TV way more than they used to. For example, like Jason said, the the MLB app, which if you're in MLB, it's so much better than the one on the old Apple TV. And now people are using their Apple TV way more to do that. Or Plex. Yeah, we use yeah. Plex to watch videos stored on our on our iMac and we use it all the time. And that alone has made it worth this for us. If you find an app that you like, I think it makes the Apple TV worth it for you. Um, but I think a lot of people just, they kind of haven't gotten into that where, oh, let me go look and see what the next, what apps are out there and if there's something I want. Yeah, more to, more to come there, I think. More to come there. Yeah, definitely. Well, we uh, have just enough time for a quick bonus topic. And uh, since I was talking about Java at the top of the show, I thought I would ask about languages. So I, I'm just curious, what languages do you speak or right. Uh, and I want to include both computer languages and human languages in the equation. Shelley? As a human, I have some uh, rusty German that I can speak. Uh, as a computer user, uh, HTML, which has been extended to XHTML, particularly of the kind required to build EPUB books by hand. Ouch. And then a little bit of AppleScript. <laughs> um, on the computer, I did, a, when I was a web programmer, I did all my work in PHP and... Uh, and basically SQL and HTML, CSS, if you count those as languages. I'm sure some people will argue that fact. Uh, a little bit of JavaScript here and there. On the human side, I've studied Latin, French, Russian, and Arabic, although my skills for those vary widely. <laughs> I've heard your fake Russian accent, too. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I've got this issue where I start learning something, and but I never kind of go beyond the basics. So I could, I could at one point in my life have a basic conversation in Spanish, German, and Japanese, and maybe pull out some HTML, AppleScript, JavaScript, a little bit of C met long time ago, and, and a bunch of st st statistics programming things, and I couldn't remember any of them to this day. So that's that's my thing. A lot of, li little bit, a lot of times, and it's all forgotten. All right. And for me, it's uh, it's German, although, boy, again, I've lost a lot of that. But I can read the street signs in Germany. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, AppleScript, um, AppleSoft Basic, if you want to program in Apple II, I'm your guy. Uh, a little shell scripting and uh, HTML, CSS stuff, but not JavaScript. I need to do better at that. All right. Uh, that's clockwise. We did it, everyone. We did four topics in 30 minutes or less. All that's left is for us to thank our guest, Shelley Brisbane. It's been a pleasure as always. I uh, hope to have you back again soon. It was great having you. It was delightful to be here as always. Dan Frakes, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back. Great to be here. Two Dans this week, Dan. Let's not happen. let that happen again. Next week, four Jasons. No. It's just we got, we're raising the stakes. <laughs> I'm just going to call you Jason, and uh, that'll solve everything. You wouldn't be the first person. Well, we'll be back next week for more, but until then, we remind you, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Bye.